Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. So today I have an interesting guest. It's a little bit focused on the economy and economics to some degree, but our conversation is going to touch on inflation, deflation. Are we in a recession? What's going on with debt? Why do we continue quote unquote printing money? Is it even necessary? In fact, is, is inflation even necessary? My guest is a very interesting guy, David Stockman. He worked under President Ronald Reagan for a number of years. He's got over 20 years experience on Wall Street. And he publishes some regular content through his newsletter that is a little bit contradictory to what you normally hear out there, especially from the talking heads in the mainstream media, which is a refreshing take because there's all these questions. You know, are rising prices or asset prices important? Is it good? Is it bad? Who's getting hurt? Is, are it the savers? Is it the people who are stacking assets? He just released a new book, interesting title. It's called The Great Money Bubble. I even asked him, you know, what exactly is a money bubble anyway? So I had an interesting conversation. I could have literally gone for hours with him. I didn't uh, out of respect for his time. In fact, he told me he's got 40 minutes and I think I dragged it out. So once we do some trimming and editing, it'll probably cut it down to about 40 minutes on this episode. But yeah, I kind of forgot to ask him one question, but I, I'm going to put it here in the intro for you. I wanted to ask him to talk about his four-step strategy to protect your savings and your portfolio. We just ran out of time. However, it is covered in his book, his new book, which just came out Oh, I don't even think three weeks ago, It's it's got a red cover with a dollar bill on it. It's called the Great Money Bubble. So you can look that up there. I guess the other thing I want to mention is that, you know, he's somewhat more bullish or excuse me, more bearish about real estate and the housing market than most anybody I talk to. And, you know, he's got his reasons for that. And that's all well and fine. I think what we all agree on is that there is a correction going on and it will continue for a little while. And of course, that's very much market specific. Every market is different. As they say in real estate, all real estate is local. And when you're talking about a country that has over 500 metropolitan areas, um, and then literally thousands of smaller micro markets, you can well imagine that what happens in one area is going to be completely different than what happens across the tracks or across the river or across the country in another market. Um, we didn't get that granular in our conversation. We were just talking at a very, very high level, but with rising interest rates, rising mortgage rates, and with you know kind of a recession looming on the horizon, as well as a lot of markets being somewhat overpriced with sales slowing down naturally, you know, it's just simple economics 101 prices will cool off in many areas, but that just leads to more opportunity as a real estate investor. There's going to be more inventory, more deal flow, more options for you. The numbers might be better in terms of pricing coming down, even though mortgage rates have gone up often that just lends itself to a better deal. But again, it's all math. It's not emotion. You just run the numbers and see if the deal makes sense. But there are always opportunities out there. Like I say, it's not a matter of when to invest. It's a matter of where to invest. And when you have a country as big as this with as many markets as we have, clearly there will always be opportunities. And you know, if that's something that we can help you with, certainly let us know. Just contact my team here. All right, without any more delay, let's jump into my interview with David Stockman. Well, it is my honor to have David Stockman on the show. 
David began his career in Washington as a young man and quickly rose through the ranks to become the director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Ronald Reagan. He was the youngest cabinet member in the 20th century, which is absolutely amazing. After leaving the White House, he began essentially a 20-year career on Wall Street, and he later became a partner of New York-based private equity company, the Blackstone Group. If you know much about them, I'll let David talk about that a little bit later. He's the author of numerous New York Times bestselling books. I think I own every single copy. He also provides private research and analysis to professional investors and firms globally through his newsletter called David Stockman's Contra Corner. And I think it's more than a newsletter. But with that, David, welcome to the show. Happy to be with you. Well, it's an honor to have you on the show. I love your material, your research, your analysis, everything from, you know, the economy to the Fed to housing to whatever you want to talk about. So it just kind of helps me keep track of the global backdrop and, you know, what is going on in this country, economically speaking. Before we kind of dive into that stuff, which I find very, very fascinating, tell us a little bit more about yourself because you've got a very interesting past you worked with President Ronald Reagan at the time. You had a very important position. You spent 20 plus years on Wall Street. I mean, you have a lot of experience. Yeah, well, but as one wag said, after 50 years in Washington and on Wall Street, I still have no usable skill. So, <laughs> you know, in terms of the productivity of our private economy. But I think it is an unusual blend. And in my uh, current book, The Great Money Bubble, and in my daily newsletter, I try to bring that together, that perspective, uh, what I learned 30 years or 25 years in Washington and another 20 years on Wall Street, I think is pretty unique. And um, it gives me an angle that's different than a lot of other commentators. And one of those angles is to understand the interaction between politics on Pennsylvania Avenue, both ends, Capitol Hill and the White House, and the actions of the Federal Reserve that obviously impact in a huge way the uh, Wall Street and then the broader economy from there. So, you know, and what we have right now is uh, a great money bubble that's uh, coming to its demise. And I, by that, I mean not just uh, inflation of uh, goods and services, gasoline, grocery prices, the highest you know, levels uh, in 40 years, but inflation of everything. We've had an enormous inflation of debt. We've had an enormous inflation of stock prices uh, you know, from uh, normal uh, industrial stocks all the way through the tech stocks. Real estate has been vastly inflated because of the cheap interest rates and easy debt that's been available. And it all starts, uh, in my judgment, at the Fed, because the Fed mm -hmm. has been the greatest inflator of all. You know, turning point, in my view, was 1987, when Greenspan became chairman of the Fed. The balance sheet of the Fed at the time was $200 billion, a big number. It had taken them 74 years to get there from the day that the Fed opened. Remember, the balance sheet is just the cumulative record of money production, money printing, credit, you know, uh, emissions by the Fed. So 74 years, they got to 200 billion. Well, recently it peaked at 9 trillion. So in just that, you know, 35 year period, the balance sheet of the Fed is exploded by 45 times during a period when GDP was up maybe five times. So you can't have money in the system. And 
50 at credit in the system, growing at nine times the rate of the economy over a half century, practically, or 35 years anyway, and expect good things to happen. What you get in that unbalanced equation is what I call the great money bubble, the massive inflation of everything that we're now being forced to confront, even the Fed, as it desperately raises interest rates, trying to catch up with the inflation curve, which is way behind. Yeah, you kind of answered one of my questions. I was wondering, why did you call it the great money bubble? You know, to dumb things down a little bit, you know, what is a quote unquote money bubble? Are you referring to just inflation or the Fed's balance sheet or something else? Yeah, I'm referring to the Fed's balance sheet, which I just described. Uh, right. At nine trillion. I'm referring to the manner in which that filtered through the economy. First, it inflated Wall Street. That's why we've had this stock market boom uh, Mm -hmm. for the last several decades. But to give one statistic on how excessive that was, let's just go back to December 2008. That was after the great financial crisis and Lehman Brothers bankruptcy and, uh, you know, the panic in the fall uh, of 2008. Mm -hmm. Well, the Um, NASDAQ 100, which I think is the leading edge of the more speculative stock market. That's all the tech stocks, uh, the big guys from Apple all the way to Facebook and Amazon and everything in between. Anyway, and this is startling, but the uh, NASDAQ 100 rose by 1,250% from that point in December 08 uh, to the peak last fall while the GDP only rose by 55%. Now, again, how in the world can stock values, and that's just the discounted uh, present value of expected earnings and cash flow, how can stock market values rise by 1,250% when the economy, where the profits have to come from, the earnings have to come from, expanded by only 55%, and that's in nominal terms, including all the inflation that we've had since 2008. In short, it doesn't work. We have an equation that is so out of kilter, so out of balance, that we've now reached the point where even the magicians at the Fed are out of dry powder, so to speak, and are being forced, and this is startling, to raise interest rates rapidly and to drain the bond pits the very opposite of the QE. They're, as you probably know, your listeners know, they're in QT, quantitative tightening. Mm-hmm. Whereas they were buying $120 billion of government debt and securitized mortgages a month during that whole period after March 2020, they are now selling, in a sense, letting mature, but that's the same thing as sell. They're selling $95 billion of uh, their balance sheet uh, government debt per month. So it's the opposite dynamic. Before, they were adding, you know, false demand, fiat demand to government securities that kept interest rates down. Now they're doing the opposite. They're dumping bonds back into the bond market in a desperate effort uh, to bring inflation under control. That's going to have a negative impact, obviously, on interest rates. And the interest rates, in turn, will filter through 
uh, the entire economy, housing markets, business investment, household uh, balance sheets, uh, you know, credit card debt and all the rest of it. So uh, we're at a turning point. Uh, the party's over. And uh, as I say, the great reckoning is now underway. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I almost don't even know where to start. But let me begin with kind of a very broad question. There's different schools of thought out there about, you know, the Fed and the necessity for having a nominal amount of inflation and all that. Do you believe that we have created an economic system that relies on a small amount of inflation all the time in order to keep the wheels on the bus, so to speak? Well, I, I understand that view. That's why the Fed adopted this 2% inflation target. But I think it is completely wrong. And I think history proves there is no magic in a positive inflation rate, 1%, 2%, or 5% for that matter. And that uh, the Fed is used that as an excuse, basically, to print money, print money. at these fantastic rates uh, for the last uh, few years, but even the, the last couple of decades. Now, I have in my book one example of why I think history proves that you don't need a little bit of inflation or 2% inflation, and that it's just an excuse for money printing. If you uh, look at the end of World War I, after the war finance ended and the big inflation at the very end of the war, worked its mm -hmm. way through the economy. So from 1921 through 1946, which is a quarter century period, in, in, you know, encompassed the great, uh, the roaring 20s, the Great Depression, and then the great revival of World War II. You put all that together and here's what you had. The CPI at the beginning and at the end was at the same level. For 25 years, there was zero net inflation. At the same time, the real GDP practically tripled during that period from the early 20s to the end of World War II, 1946. Now, there you have a juxtaposition of no inflation over a long period of time. And that growth, that tripling, amounted to 3.8% per year GDP growth, real GDP growth over the period. And as far as I'm concerned, that's pretty powerful proof that it doesn't take uh, inflation, it doesn't take a 2% magic Fed target to get the economy to grow. The economy will grow because people wanted their circumstances. And so they will invest, they will speculate, they will invent, they will innovate, they will work uh, harder if given the opportunity. That's where economic growth comes from. The private economy, workers and businesses and all the rest of them, it doesn't mm -hmm. come from some idiotic inflation target at the Fed. So I'm very firm in my views that that target is at the heart of the great inflation problem that we're facing today. They were just flooding the market with uh, fiat uh, credits. It took a while for that to work through the financial system and then travel around the globe. Remember, we're in a global economy. We import half of what we consume. And right. so it took a while uh, for A to lead to B, but it did. And here we are, uh, you know, with 7% plus inflation as the BLS measures, it would probably double digit uh, if you were uh, to look yeah, at yeah. it, uh, honestly. 
so do you think i don't want to make assumptions here or try to read between the lines but do you think these inflation targets are an excuse of some kind to continue to print money because it's politically favorable the spending's out of control we have all these programs to fund so we need a way to fund it and you'll never ever get it through taxation you could tax everybody 100% of their income and still not be able to cover the debt and social programs so where do you turn to you you know it's the the lender of last resort the federal reserve so it just becomes an excuse to continue to print to fund all these programs well i don't know you can say it was the intent but it certainly was convenient okay right as you never would have seen the federal debt grow from 1 trillion where it was when i was budget director with ronald reagan right. to 31 trillion it just couldn't have happened without an interest rate crisis, without massive conflagration in the bond markets, uh, private sectors, uh, borrowers being uh, crowded out and so forth, without all that money printing by the Fed. So it enabled Washington to have a 30 year spree of uh, big spending, as I call it, and uh, this massive amount of uh, public debt creation. But even that now has reached its limit because, as I said a few moments ago, the Fed is now shrinking its balance sheet, dumping mm -hmm. bonds into the bond pit, not buying them up. And, uh, you know, we're kind of uh, having to unwind all the fun and games that uh, were created, uh, especially yeah. in the last three years. So it'd be interesting to hear what your thoughts are. My personal thought or prediction is that sometime within the next six to 12 months, the Fed is going to take their foot off the brakes, stop pumping the brakes and maybe start pushing the gas pedal a little bit again. So they're going to transition from quantitative tightening to easing again, because they don't, at least unless they're insane, they don't want to collapse or crush the US economy or even the world economy for that matter. Do you believe that as well? Uh, I think everybody believes it, but I seriously doubt it. Because I think what we're in is we're in the midst of a severe stagflation, stagflation, the worst in history, mm -hmm. in which the choices confronting the Fed are all bad. Now, if we look at the underlying uh, dynamics, the internals in the inflation indexes, uh, CPI, PPI, and so forth, it is pretty evident to me that they're not going to get the inflation rate much below five or six percent because on a year over year basis, because that's what's happening right now in the wage economy and in the services sector, which accounts for more than 60 percent of the weight in the CPI. Now, if the Fed is faced with uh, inflation that is that sticky and stubborn and is hanging up there in the five, six, seven percent range, which I think is going to happen, they yeah. are not going to be able to take their foot off the brake and pivot to this uh, renewed cycle of rate cutting and ease that uh, Wall Street is praying for. And every time there's a slight uh, nuance uh, change in the CPI uh, increase, uh, they say is uh, certain to happen. Well, I, I just don't think it is because these people actually believe they're, they're what I call mechanistic Keynesians and they actually believe in their targets and they do believe in this 2%. I think it's totally uh, wrong, but they believe in 2% and when you've got 6% inflation on a running basis, not just one month, but 
year over year or three months annualized or whatever, they are not going to be able to rationalize going to ease. Uh, they may keep it on pause, you know, for an extended period of time, but they'll keep it on pause with interest rates even well higher than they are today. Because there is one thing that even Powell has hinted at that I think is crucial to the whole discussion, and that is you're never going to get inflation down if you have negative real interest rates. You have to get a positive yield after accounting for inflation. Well, look at where we are right now. Three and a half percent yield on the 10-year inflation running at seven, eight percent. So you've got a negative real yield of three or four percent, and you have to get into positive territory. Now, I was around back in the late 70s, early 80s, when Volcker faced the same uh, kind of challenge. Right. And when right. he became Fed chairman, the real yield on the 10-year bond, which I think is the great benchmark to take a look at, the 10-year Treasury note, was about negative 2%. And he said, this can't be. We're never going to get out of this inflation spiral of rising prices, wages, costs, and more of that again, unless we get interest rates solidly in positive territory. By mid-1981, that negative two had become positive nine. Okay, He raised the uh, interest rate and the nominal yields dramatically and by huge amounts in order to break the back of inflation. Now, I'm not sure they have to go that far this time, but they sure as heck are gonna to have to go well into positive real yield territory, which I think will take interest rates well above where we are today before they bring inflation even you know, into the zone of their 2% target. So there's a lot of wishful thinking going on. Now, Wall Street, basically doesn't care about earnings or economic fundamentals or, you know, the yeah. profit outlook for the economy. The only thing they want is easy money from the Fed. And every time someone can interpret a new uh, set of uh, release of data as uh, indicative that the ease is finally coming, the pivot is around the corner and they start buying the stock. Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, they're not doing their job because the Fed is essentially turn the stock market into a gambling casino. You know, there, it's not a mechanism for discounting the real earnings prospects yeah. of the companies in the uh, stock market, but simply a venue for gamblers to bet on what 12 people on the Federal Open Market Committee might do next time they get together. And that is a hell of a long way from free market capitalism. So if Wall Street wants ultra cheap debt, and the housing market would ideally like to have continued cheap debt, then it becomes you know, a want and maybe it's politically favorable. So do you not think we're going to get back to that point maybe sooner than later, but at some point? I'm saying it's going to happen sooner than later. I hear you saying it's going to take longer than we all expect, yeah. but we'll ultimately get back to that same place. I doubt it. You know, I think we're not going to get back to negative real interest rates for a long time. And what fueled uh, the real estate boom was that you had exceedingly low mortgage rates and exceedingly low yields on commercial debt, uh, commercial mortgages that allowed investors and or speculators to bid up the price of real estate. Because essentially, in the long run, real, the price of real estate is an inverse function of the yield 
<laughs> on uh, debt because real estate is essentially uh, debt financed uh, overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. So I think the real estate market is just one more sector of the economy that was badly distorted and inflated by these years of money printing. And now, you know, we're going <laughs> to face the uh, music. Yeah, well, you could argue that we never had a free market. You know, it was a manipulated market driven by, you know, cheap debt. Right. That, that's the point. Exactly. Yeah. So if what you're saying is true, if that is what will unfold, it's going to be a long drawn out correction, if you will. What does that mean to two main markets, the equities market and for my listeners, the housing market in general? Well, for the equities market, I think it means we got a long way down yet to go. (laughs) All right. Uh, You know, the interest. Uh, stock prices, the indices have corrected a little bit, uh, 15, 18%, but I think it's ultimately yeah. going to be more like 40 or 50%. Uh, the S&P 500 is going to get back to 3,000 or less. It's not going back to 5,000 or more where it was at the peak last fall. And it's already beginning to show up in the most uh, speculative quarters, but it's going to spread to the entire market. Some people would be shocked to know that, for instance, a favorite like Facebook had a market cap of $1.1 trillion last fall. It's now $300 billion. <laughs> They've shed mm-hmm. $800 billion worth of market cap because it was based on a predicate that wasn't true. And that is that the advertising migration to digital, which they were benefiting from, would go on forever when, in fact, it's almost over. And, uh, you know, their uh, costs are out of control and their revenue is now hitting the flat line. So the market finally caught up with that and said, Mm -hmm. you know, this isn't growth forever and the stock got walloped uh, pretty hard. Now, that's just uh, kind of a leading indicator of what I think uh, is coming in in a lot of sectors of the stock market. As to the housing market, I think, unfortunately, people got caught up in the second bubble. You know, if they either refied at low interest rates based on high property values, or they uh, bought a new property based on where the market has been in the last year or two, there is going to be at least paper losses. If you don't move and you stay there until they move you out, uh, then I guess uh, and you own or have a modest-sized mortgage, I guess you'll be okay. But if you're in the real estate speculation business, including the house flipping business, I think uh, there's some pretty hard times coming because mortgage rates have a long way to go up yet. You know, they already touched on 7% on the 30-year mortgage not too long ago. They've come off in that a little bit. But when you have 7% inflation, that's not a mortgage rate. <laughs> so right. mortgage rate's going to go up a little more, even more. And, uh, you know, we're already beginning to see uh, the impact uh, in real estate. There, there's an old saying that says, uh, volume leads price. And we've had a huge volume decline in real estate transactions, uh, both commercial and residential. And it's only a matter of time before sellers uh, finally capitulate and realize that they're not going to get the prices uh, that were on the uh, radar screen a few months or mm-hmm. a year ago. So, um, yeah, I think there's a big uh, decline coming in the uh, household real estate uh, value. Yeah. 
Well, we've already seen corrections across many markets around the country, uh, especially the larger tier one markets. In fact, some markets have corrected beyond 10%. The expectation in many markets from data and research I'm looking at is showing you know, a 20% correction in a lot of markets, but that's needed. It's due because there's been such rapid price gains in a lot yeah. of these markets partly due to you know cheap mortgage rates but also because of lack of supply and strong demand it's just right. you know you've got that price appreciation you have inflationary price appreciation it's all you know coming to a head but now we're seeing that correction it's always interesting to hear other people's opinions and perspectives because you get all kinds of different predictions if you will about yeah. what the housing market will do over the next 12 to 24 months so i think everybody's in agreement that we're going to see price corrections in most markets around the country, but to the extent of how far that will go, how long it will last and how much the correction will be, it varies pretty widely. Kind of a general question about inflation. This is almost like teeing up a question for you, maybe a bit, little bit loaded, but you know, some people ask, you know, is inflation good and is it even necessary? And I, I think your argument is that inflation is not necessary, but I kind of curious if you can just drill a little bit yeah, deeper on that. I, it's really amazing to me how this argument that inflation is helpful to growth, it's uh, n necessary, that it's a prop uh, to prosperity. Where that right. comes from? Because if we look at the most dynamic sectors of the economy today, the tech sector, what was pricing doing in the tech sector for the last 30 years? It was going down. <laughs> Okay, big time. And that didn't, you know, the theory is, well, if prices are going down, people won't invest or spend. They'll just wait for lower prices. Well, let's prove unequivocally in the tech sector that that's not true. I mean, because if it were true, no one would have bought a television set. No one would have right. bought a computer. No one would have bought an iPhone because even the price of iPhones, uh, you know, have gone down on a net basis over time since they've been introduced. So that pretty much is proof in the pudding. I cited a little while ago the 25-year period when we had zero inflation and a tripling of the real size of the economy, not the nominal GDP, but the real GDP from mm -hmm. 2021 to 1946. So that's just wrong. And it's something peddled by Keynesian economists who are always looking for a reason to meddle in the economy and to stimulate fiscally or especially now at the uh, Federal Reserve. And, you know, that became the argument of first resort at the Fed. Uh, you know, I, I just posted the other day in one of my uh, daily newsletters a big interview uh, with Lael Brainerd, who's supposedly one of the big thinkers on the Fed and was in line maybe to even become the Fed chairman one of these days. January 2020. Now, that's not that long ago, right? It was on the eve of this great inflation wave we're in now. Right. Talking about the Fed needs to find new tools and new measures to get inflation up higher where it needs to be. That's, that, you know, that's what they were thinking in January 2020 and for at least eight years before that. Because the inflation rate, <laughs> nominal inflation rate was running just under 2%, but for reasons these people weren't even looking at. And I've laid this out in my book in quite detail. It was a split screen inflation over the last seven or eight years, going back to 2012, when the Fed began actual inflation targeting the 2% officially 
in January 2012 when Bernanke pronounced it, you know, the magic omen that was going to make everything better. But if you look at it, these numbers are startling. But durable goods, which were mainly imported and reflected the one-time gains of shifting the supply chain, as painful as it was, from high-cost American production to low-cost production in China, Vietnam, uh, Mexico, and so forth, that one-time gain resulted in a startling decline in the price of durables. From 1995, when the China export machine really got going, to 2019, the price Mm -hmm. of durables in the uh, PCE deflator, CPI, dropped 40%. (laughs) And I, I have to repeat it, 40%, the price level went down at a time when the service index was going up 2 to 3% a year, year in and year out without uh, hesitation. So the only reason they were at or under target was there was a one-time windfall of cheap foreign goods coming into the economy that held down the overall index, uh, the overall deflator, but that was one time. You're not gonna have 40% again in the next uh, uh, couple of decades because that would mean uh, durable goods have zero price, which is ridiculous, okay? In fact, right now uh, we're you know, facing the supply chain disruptions, the uh, soaring cost of commodities and energies, which ends up in durable goods and manufacturers sourced abroad. And so that, you know, that uh, headwind against inflation has already ended. I mean, durable Mm -hmm. durable goods prices are still like 15% above where they were a year ago. So my point is that this is all wrong. This uh, inflation uh, is good for you. Uh, 2% a year is uh, necessary in the minimum. And we should print money. I mean, the idea, I've been at this quite a while, as we uh, discussed, I started in 1970 on Capitol Hill. But the idea that anyone would be talking at the Fed about inflation being too low, lowflation, about the Fed finding ways to increase the level of inflation, the price level, is was unthinkable. You know, everything was always about keeping the price level uh, reasonably stable and the purchasing power of money uh, uh, as solid as possible. That's what we used to think. Now we've got all these Keynesians led by Bernanke and then Yellen and uh, Paul didn't know what the hell he was doing, but he just adopted the same theory, um, you know, have, have really saddled us with a very uh, destructive idea that needs to be purged from the Eccles building uh, or we're never going to get out of this mess. Well, one of the leading arguments for having inflation, perpetual inflation, and I know you've heard of this, I know you know this, is that our national debt keeps growing larger and larger. It's beneficial for the government to be able to pay off that debt or service the debt. I shouldn't say pay it off because it seems like it'll never be paid off, but to service that debt every year with cheaper and cheaper dollars, meaning inflated dollars. So that way they can, you know, more comfortably, if you will, service that debt. That seems to be a leading argument for inflation. Well, it's a leading argument, but it's a really dangerous and false argument because if the government benefits and they find it very convenient, sure, the savers are going to be savaged. Okay. Or they're destroyed. Yeah, pardon? 
uh, you know, they're destroyed and they have been yeah, for, they, for, exactly. for many, many years. Yeah, but when you look at the mechanism of capitalist prosperity, uh, at the end of the day, you need private savings of a healthy, hefty level in order to fund the new investment and in productivity and capacity expansion and in labor force uh, improvement. And if you don't have the savings, you're not going to get that basic ingredient of prosperity and growth. Now, some people say, oh, let, let the Fed print the money. Well, the Fed prints the money sooner or later, it's in, it comes out as inflation. It doesn't come out as savings. It doesn't come out right. as real prosperity living standards. So, you know, we need to call them to account for all of this economic malarkey. The idea that inflation is good because it's going to make the debt service cheaper is one of yeah. the most insidious arguments I've ever heard, because what it's doing is telling politicians, don't worry about a 31 trillion debt, which I think is headed to 50 trillion. It's just built in. You know, we're borrowing two trillion a year. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, in 10 years, you'll be at 50. You uh, you're taking away the one discipline that actually still existed back in the 70s and 80s when I was in the middle of this. And that is that was before Greenspan. That was before the Fed went into monetization of the debt in a big way. And people really did worry. Politicians worried that if we overdid it with spending and borrowing, that they would hear from the folks back home. OK, because interest rates would go up. Home, uh, home buyers couldn't get a mortgage at a rate that they could uh, uh, handle. Right. Uh, the car dealer couldn't finance his floor plan because interest rates were double digits. Uh, the local right. feed mill, et cetera, couldn't finance its inventory. The local factory couldn't finance its expansion. All of these things created political opposition at the grassroots that kept politicians reasonably honest in a real debate about uh, federal borrowing. But after 1987, when the Fed began to become the printer of last resort, the funder mm -hmm. of the U.S. Treasury of last resort, you know, all bets were off one by one, all the old, uh, what I call the stalwart, you know, fiscally responsible politicians either died off, defeated or retired in right. both parties. And we ended up with a generation of, of politicians now in Washington that have never really had to contemplate soaring interest rates due to what they're up to, which is spending and borrowing. Yeah. If we take that question of you know whether inflation is good or even necessary and flip it around, the, kind of the opposite question is, is deflation a bad thing? Because we talk about deflation as being this bad thing, this taboo thing you never want to get into a deflationary environment because, you know, the economy will unravel, a wheel will come off or something. I mean, what's your thoughts on deflation being yeah. good or bad or necessary? Well, I think that's a great question. And uh, I, you know, I don't think deflation is any particular kind of evil. Okay, if uh, the economy is growing uh, on its own two feet, and if investment is strong and productivity is expanding and you've got sound money uh, at the central bank, it's very possible that you'll get uh, deflation. We've had periods of deflation before from the end of the Civil War to 1912. 
we had uh, spectacular uh, economic growth, and yet the price level actually went down during that period. On that, it was a deflation. And as I cited in the 20s and 30s, 40s on net, there was no inflation. So the idea that deflation is a terrible thing, that the economy will go spinning into a black hole if uh, the price level goes down, is just damn nonsense. It's uh, stuff made up by the Keynesian economists who believe in the Phillips curve and the trade-off between inflation and uh, growth and the idea that the economy is like some giant bathtub and it's their job to pump it full of demand uh, right up to the brim in order to <laughs> everything uh, uh, ideal. Well, you know, the, the thing I might say here is that my book, The Great Money Bubble, addresses all of those things. The exact questions that you're raising that have justified this nonsense yeah. that we've had out of Washington for several decades now are addressed. And I think one by one, I refute these uh, hoary myths. A good strategy would be to send a copy signed by you to every single politician and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and hope that if, they if read I thought, book. If I thought they would read it and it would do any good, I would gladly send them all 10 copies and pay for it myself. But, you know... Uh, that's the only thing that really wakes up politicians is a lot of noise from back home. And I think mm -hmm. we're starting to get that. So I have a little bit of hope. I'm not a total uh, pessimist about this. Um, I remember 1980, no one said Ronald Reagan could win. You know, he was uh, way off the spectrum and uh, the public would never uh, fall for, you know, what he was uh, selling. And he won big time because inflation peaked around 1980. And the people said, enough of this. We can't live with this kind of Jimmy Carter uh, economic policy of no growth, uh, soaring uh, cost of living, and very little hope about the future. Now, maybe that's where we're heading in 2024, a referendum, mm -hmm. a kind of great realignment election at least you can hope, that may uh, cause policy to finally get rectified. You know, yeah. I think it's too early to tell exactly if that's yeah. uh, plausible, but at least there's a, there's a window because we have history. And history yeah. uh, basically proved that you can only beat up the public so long with what then was stagflation. The growth was weak and the inflation was strong. That's the same thing we've got now. Uh, you can only yeah. do it. We're going to have a recession big time next year. So as we go into 2024, the public is going to be black and blue, first from the inflationary wave and then from the recession uh, that became inevitable. And uh, maybe that'll cause things uh, to be, uh, you know, redirected in uh, by the electorate in 2024. Yeah, that's a good argument. So as we wrap things up here, I want to ask you two final quick questions here. I have a large audience of investors, and so they're going to obviously be interested in this. I don't know if I like your claim here, I, but I'm pretty sure you said in, in your somewhere in your book that real estate is no longer a guaranteed inflationary hedge. Were those your yes. words? And if so, why? Yes, I said that because I was thinking about the 1970s and people found that in, uh, real estate was a good hedge in the 70s. And in some cases, you could make a fair amount of money beyond inflation because real estate values went up. There is a huge difference between that and today. I call that your grandfather's inflation and it's very different than today. When the decade started, 
real estate was fairly or properly valued. Uh, interest rates uh, were real, uh, were positive in real terms. There had been no great long period of speculation in real estate fueled by cheap debt. And so therefore, you started with fairly priced real estate that kept up with inflation, and in some cases, a little more. Today, you're starting with vastly overvalued real estate in an environment in which interest rates have to go up, which means real estate prices are going to go down. And so even if uh, some you know, of the inflationary pressure real estate is able to capture, for the most part, real estate prices are going down. There are not a good hedge unless you're buying real estate as an income property and never intend to sell it. Uh, if you're investing in real estate because you think you're going to have a trade to you know, flip it three years from now, five years from now, or eight years from now, I would say it's a very bad bet. Yeah. And I think you and I are on the same page on that. So for clarity, the people who are listening, what you said in my own words is don't be a real estate speculator. You're not yeah. buying real estate in the hopes that it goes up or, you know, or just riding on a potential appreciation wave. The property has to make sense. It has to carry itself. It has to cash flow so it can service yeah. its debt. And over time, your equity will grow. And part of that's going to be appreciation for however that happens, whether through supply and demand and or through inflationary forces. But you also have the cash flows as well as the equity growth. So I think you and I are on the same page on that. It's just I not. Think we are. And I, I would just add, though, that don't overdo it with leverage or debt. In other words, you want real estate that produces income and cash flow that has a modest amount of debt because it's going to be a long haul here. And when uh, mortgages turn over or real estate debt turns over, the next time the interest rate's going to be a lot higher than it is right now. And uh, that could become a problem. You think you're uh, you know, well-balanced in terms of cash flow. You go to refi and for years now, refi has been yeah. to lower costs. Going forward, refi uh, at term or uh, any other reason is going to be a ticket to higher costs and less net cash flow. Is there a piece of advice you want to leave everybody in terms of how to prepare for what's coming, whatever yeah. that may be? Yeah, well, I mean, the term I use is hunker down. That doesn't sound too attractive, <laughs> but what I mean is the party's over. And so uh, what people yeah. need to do is basically look at their balance sheet and get as rid of as much debt as possible, including if you have real estate property that is uh, appreciated enormously, I would cash out. If you've got tech stocks that are up four or five times, they're not going to go up anymore. They're going to go down. So uh, cash out, pay down the debt. You know, you're, you're going to have to tighten the belt and people are going to need to live uh, more modest lifestyles until we get through this storm. Now, eventually we will. Okay, but I think the idea of the storm is going to be six months and done because uh, the Fed fixed everything uh, is just totally wrong. It's going to be six years and running, not even longer. Yeah, for sure. David, I really appreciate all the time you've taken today. Uh, we could literally talk for hours. This is fascinating stuff. And there's so many other questions that I wanted to ask you. But in respect of your time, let's uh, you know continue this to another day. Tell our listeners how they can follow you, get more information, subscribe to your newsletter. Of course, I think your books are available on Amazon and everywhere else, but just tell yeah. our audience uh, where they can find you. 
lot of these topics we've been talking about, I cover on a daily basis in my newsletter. It's called David Stockman's Contra Corner, as in contrarian, you know, so you're not going to find conventional views that you would uh, read in the Wall Street Journal. It's a contrarian take on money, Wall Street, the stock market, uh, Washington, public finance, and the rest of it. And you, you just need to Google uh, David Stockman's Contra Corner. It'll come up and you can then click on to the site. Perfect. And I'll put all that in the show notes. And again, all your books are available on Amazon. I know that Barnes and Noble, they're widely available everywhere. So David, right. enjoy New York. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Happy to be with you. Well, that is it for today. If you have any questions about real estate investing, finance, or uh, even a personal question, just shoot it over to me at Ask Marco. Go to PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com and just click on the Ask Marco link. Send that over to me and I'll uh, address that on one of my future Ask Marco episodes. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the show, remember to subscribe. It takes you all of uh, three seconds. Help us share the show with your friends and family. I love the referrals. I love the ratings and I love the reviews. I read every single one of them. Thank you for all the kind words and feedback. I'm glad the show is helping many of you. Thank you for listening. I will see you all on our next episode. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.